everyone and welcome to episode 35 of the Bodybuilding Dietitians podcast. As per usual, you're joined by myself, Jack and Tierra Nelson and we have a very special Q&A today, lots of great listener questions to answer and we'll also be recapping on our past week. Yeah, so this past week has been, damn, it's been really, really good, full of great training sessions, good quality sleep, you know, been in contact with more clients, which has just been amazing and yeah, it's pretty exciting, especially yesterday we got to go to a special event with ICN Queensland. They had their, you know, seasonal pose with the pros session and Jack and I tagged along and got to train with everyone and it was just such a good atmosphere, man. Like it was so much fun to see heaps of people that we know from social media but haven't even met before in person and you know, I just want to say a huge thank you to absolutely everyone who came up to Jack and I in the gym and said that they love the podcast like seriously that means so much to us and that just made us so happy and ah it was just so cool to see everyone such an epic atmosphere and it makes me really grateful to know that I'm in this kind of industry where social events are held in gyms because I know you know a lot of friends would usually meet each other at a club but (laughs) we're the kind of people who meet up in a gym which is pretty cool but by the booty builder machine the booty builder machine (laughs) yep best machine (laughs) but yeah yesterday was super fun and yeah as of today we are recording this on the 18th of august i am 13 days out from starting my comp prep for 2020 season a ifbb bikini so holy shiz i'm getting really excited less than two weeks now and yeah i guess just a bit of an update on me you know i've been maintaining my body weight now ever since i wrapped up my cut about a month and a half ago and it's been pretty stable between 67 to 67.5 it fluctuates you know just based off hydration status but yeah and my macros have been steady since then too they've been sitting at 160 protein 375 carb and 40 fat and man I just feel really good honestly this is the heaviest I've ever been and like a well I got up to 70 kilograms at the peak. The best you've looked at the heaviest you've been. Wow, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, I I feel really good in my body composition right now, even though I'm sitting over 10 kilograms above my previous stage weight. And I just feel happy. I feel strong. I feel confident. So what I'm really thinking is that for these last 13 days of my improvement season before I start prep, I'm just going to slightly increase my carb intake by 25 grams and I'm going to bring it up to 400 grams per day and just see how my body responds. Even though that's only, you know, an extra 100 calorie increase, I just, I want to get up to that 400 mark for these last few weeks. And yeah, just really take advantage of training performance and pumps and yeah, should be good. But I'm so freaking keen to start prep. Oh my God, I've... I'm just ready for this, you know? I've been waiting a long time for this. I've been planning for this for years and man, I am ready. So yeah, Jack, how's the last week been for you? Yeah, it's been a great week for me as well. It was really good to see everyone there yesterday and for me in particular, uh, seeing all the bodybuilders there who are competing this season as well and looking at the standard. And yeah, the last time or would have been uh, the season A show where Tierra and I got to mix with everyone and socialize and uh, a bit of an, 
like it made me pretty damn excited to compete in 2021 which still seems like a, a long time away but got a lot a lot of time to keep improving on my physique and in terms of my training it's been going pretty well i've actually decided to do a six week training block uh, for this mezzo and then deload after six weeks and the reason behind that is I do find that my progress in a lot of, especially more the upper body movements tends to stall after about six weeks. And so I usually start off my training block at around three reps in reserve, ideally, uh, sometimes less than that. And then by about six weeks, I've pretty much gone to failure on most of them. So it doesn't really make sense for me to continue training uh, to failure and not really making much progress in those lifts. So. I could keep on adding we, uh, weekly sets, but there's there's only a certain amount before it just turns into junk volume, and I just increase fatigue without actually getting much other benefit. So, yeah, I think it's wonderful that you're auto regulating that deload in there, and you know, deloads it, it might seem like a step back, but it's really one small step back. But you're taking two steps forward too, and in the long run, you're be going to be able to progress a lot faster than you would if you would have extended this out to like a 10-week mesocycle. Yeah, definitely. And yeah, especially my squats as well. They're starting to feel like the weight's kind of crushing me and I do... Starting to kind of feel like squats. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and yeah, I feel like I am pretty much ready. So it'll be good to deload and just track and see how my progress differs when I'm uh, doing slightly smaller training blocks. Yeah, it should be exciting to see how that goes. Mm. But yeah, other than that, uh, all my clients are going well. Can't wait to see uh, Lockie compete in season B. It's going to be awesome. And everyone else is making great progress as well. Yeah, it's really not long now. It's less than five weeks out from the Brisbane Classic. So whew, that's going to be so much fun. And again, we can't wait to catch up with everyone that we saw yesterday at World's Gym Kumra for the posing session and can't wait to see everyone on stage. Everyone's just looking so damn good. Mm. Wow, I can't wait to see like how much they can improve like even more in five weeks. It's, it's going to be pretty damn phenomenal. So what's the first question for today, Tierra? All right, yeah, so jumping straight into the questions. So this one is from Rochelle and she's asked, when macro counting, how do you feel about macro banking? For example, someone saving their carbs for one meal, especially when depleted for a competition. Now, she said that, you know, saving all of your carbs for one meal, but I guess some other people macro bank across separate days, don't they? So some people, you know, they might say, oh man, I'm really hungry today. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to eat 20 extra carbs today and I'm going to take those carbohydrates away from tomorrow. What are, you know, what do you think about this, Jack? So I, the first thing I would consider is whether the individual is, and this has nothing to do with the question asker, just uh, my thoughts in general, and whether the individual is an athlete or their main goal is performance or their main goal is just to be healthy. And depending on, so let's go with the latter option first. So if they're just a, a general population who wants to be healthy, they might train as well. Again, just to stay healthy, no performance goals. Then the first thing I would consider is, is this going to be the healthiest relationship with food? And I assume if they're counting macros, then they're probably not going to be 
lifestyle-based anyway. Mm -hmm. Um, But in my opinion, it's probably not the healthiest way to think about food in terms of uh, it's very objective in terms that you're looking at it in a very numerical way um, and saving calories for later. I think some people can think like this and still have a very healthy relationship with food. And for example, I, I think I think like that in terms of food. Um, and it, it certainly works for me. But I would say the biggest thing, in my opinion, is just remaining healthy, um, trying to avoid starting any disordered eating patterns and stuff like that. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And especially because this question says, for example, saving all of your carbs for one meal. Again, this is going to highly depend on the situation and whether you know you're more of a general population type of person or client, or if you are an athlete, because you know, some this could even happen to all of us. So for example, imagine you know that you're going out for a big birthday dinner to an Italian restaurant that night with your friends and there's going to be pasta and pizza and cake and you don't have, you know, many calories to play around with because maybe you have sort of dieting goals, right? So it might actually be strategic to try to save a few of your carbohydrates or a large portion of your carbohydrates later during the day for that meal, just so that they fit in with your total energy budget and your total macronutrient goals, because those are the big ticket items that we want to think about. But I wouldn't necessarily think about doing it every single day, especially if you have performance related goals, because, you know, we know a lot about peri-workout nutrition and how we really want to prioritize carbohydrates around our workouts. So in our pre-workout and our post-workout meal to really maximize our performance during that training session. So that is certainly something to think about as well. And then also... Some people, you know, macro banking, they might take macros like carbohydrates away from other days. Now, it highly depends on the magnitude of that. So, for example, if you ate an extra five grams of carbs today and wanted to take an extra five grams like away from tomorrow, that is not going to make a difference in the large scheme of things at all. But it would be a completely different story if you ate an extra 100 grams of carbs today and then you ate 100 grams of carbs less tomorrow. And if you had a really big, you know, leg session planned for tomorrow where you were trying to hit, you know, numbers that you've never hit before. And also, if you find that you are getting into the rhythm of doing that on specific days during the week, then perhaps have a chat with your coach and you know if you are following into that pattern and perhaps that might even be something that you prefer like you know that you want to have a really high carb day one day and then less carbs on another day or something you could even potentially talk to your coach about you know having high and low carbohydrate days and then as long as the you know total energy and calories balance out at the end of the week so do your macronutrients do you have anything to add to that no, I'll just reinforce that. I completely agree and I would reinforce that essentially, especially in regards to the performance aspect. If you are banking all your carbohydrates for the evening when you work out in the morning, then it's probably not going to be the most optim- optimal, especially if you're in something like a comp prep or you're another form of athlete as well. Yeah, you really have to put things on a hierarchy and really think about what are your main goals and what are you really, really trying to achieve here? Okay, so moving on to the next question. This one's by Emily. 
how to calculate how much protein macros you need, for example, total weight or just muscle mass, etc. Yeah, so this is an interesting question, and I've had quite a few thoughts about this as well, because, you know, generally protein recommendations are given in terms of total body weight, so grams per kilogram of body weight, and general recommendations, probably anywhere between 1.6 to 2.5 grams per kilogram of body weight per day. But Eric Helms also wrote a systematic review, and he released some new numbers based off protein requirements specifically for fat-free mass. So total protein requirements in terms of grams per kilogram of purely just fat-free mass or muscle mass. And these requirements were between 2.3 to 3.1 grams per kilogram of fat-free mass per day. Now, my I had kind of like an idea about this. And what I was thinking was because obviously, if you were consuming protein in terms of fat-free mass, that would be lower than if you were to consume it in terms of total body weight. But what you could do is perhaps is take your starting body weight in terms of total kilograms. So for example, I weigh 67 kilograms right now, but then start off at the lower range for fat-free mass. So you could take 67 kilograms, so take 67 and times that by 2.3, and then that would give you a certain number, right? But then as you continue to go through a dieting phase and you're losing weight, but you're trying to maintain that muscle mass, what I would recommend is just don't change your protein intake. Constantly keep your protein intake level so that as you continue to lose body weight, the total amount of grams per kilogram of fat-free mass is actually inching back up towards that 3.1 grams per kilogram of fat-free mass, if that makes sense. I know that there's a hell of a lot of math going on in my head right now, and I'd actually have to grab a calculator, but I guess the bottom line is, is that once you start a dieting phase, set your protein anywhere around 2.3 or 2.5 grams per kilogram of body weight, and even as you continue to lose weight, don't change your daily protein intake. And Jack, you do something similar to that, don't you? Yeah, so in my uh, prep last year, I didn't actually, or my coach and I didn't actually manipulate protein at all. It stayed as a static number, which meant that protein uh, represented in grams per kilo and grams per kilo of lean body mass would have uh, slowly increased over time as well. But there are a number of other factors why you wouldn't manipulate protein in a prep. One, because it's very satiating. And two, there is some very, still very early research that higher protein amounts during a prep are more preserving for muscle mass. Um, but that's quite still quite obscure at the moment. But personally, in terms of determining someone's uh, protein requirements, I just go off total body weight. And the main reason behind that is just because it's very easy, uh, stress-free, and you don't have to know their lean body mass, which can be quite tough and quite hard to accurately measure. Yeah, exactly. We certainly don't have all of our clients do, getting DEXA scans. And even with DEXA scans, you know, there is a area for inaccuracy there. So certainly is easiest for everyone to just go off total body weight because that's a super easy number to find out. Mm. Cool. So moving on to the next question. So this one was asked by Bella and she says, why do bodies plateau and how to break it, especially during comp prep? 
So Jack, why would someone hit a plateau? So a plateau is a very natural response from the body and it's simply just a preserva preservation of energy uh, once you reach a certain body fat. So if you think about it, your body wants to maintain a certain degree of homeostasis and it wants to be in a healthy range of body fat, which therefore corresponds to bodily functions such as hormones. So if you go below a certain degree of body fat, then your body will uh, result in certain functions such as decreasing need. So you'll find that you fidget less, uh, you'll want to move less. Yeah, even things that are completely out of your control, like heart rate and respiratory rate. So that's like resting, right? So how many beats at rest does your heart beat? And then also how many times do you inhale and exhale at rest? And, you know, the body will fight back and it is a natural defense mechanism to plateau in body weight because it doesn't want to lose any more body weight. It wants to be healthy. So it will do things like that. Slow down your heart rate, slow down your respiratory rate. And that is really out of your control unless you are purposefully like always thinking about how fast you're breathing and you're <gasps> like purposely panting all the time or if you're like really trying to run around and stay on your feet and really keep your heart rate up but you know to a point you just got to give in and sometimes your body just will fight back and in that case in order to break a plateau usually you have to increase energy expenditure or slightly decrease your energy intake. Yeah it's quite a boring answer and one that is just makes it a bit more difficult but there's no sneaky avenue to success in this regard. You really just have to either increase your output or decrease your input. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and just literally push. There really is no such thing as starvation mode. That was proven by, you know, the Minnesota starvation study. And if this is the case and, you know, you feel as though you have hit a plateau, just make sure that you are accurately calculating everything and you are tracking everything to an absolute T. So... One, like the main thing would certainly be your energy intake. Make sure that you are accounting for absolutely every single thing that you put into your mouth and you are weighing it accurately as well. And you are aware of how much energy you're actually expending and you're not kidding yourself, you know? So if you're in a car ride and it's bumpy and, you know, that counts an extra 3,000 steps on your Fitbit and you know that it's counting those 3,000 extra steps, you know, don't kid yourself. You might have to do 13,000 instead of 10,000 kind of thing. Or just be aware of how much you're moving and your energy levels too. Just, um, yeah. And sleep is a huge one. Just make sure that you definitely are sleeping enough. Yeah. Never underestimate the importance of sleep. Never ever. Okay. So this next question is by Cameron Jackson. It's a pretty damn good one. It says, what are your thoughts on the pros and cons of coming in leaner earlier in a prep and holding condition, for example, 10 weeks out versus peaking specifically for the show? I'd love to hear your answer to this. So yeah, there definitely are a number of uh, pros and cons for both. And I think Tierra and I would probably be somewhere in between, to be honest. Yeah, because 10 weeks out is a pretty long way. That's like over two months. Mm. So you do have to, again, it comes down to the individual as well. And if you are truly lean at 10 weeks out with like striated glutes as a bodybuilder, everything is in condition, then that is a long time to be out and just holding it without any shows for 10 weeks. So personally, I think that is a little bit too early to, to be ready. 
And optimally, I think you should be ready at a stage where you can start to decrease stress and slowly raise food going into the show. So then you come in at a period of low stress uh, due to a reduction in training fatigue and also an increase in food as well, which will help you appear fuller as well and which will also lower, lower stress as well. So it's difficult to give a particular number, but I would probably say anywhere between three to five weeks out. But that's not necessarily the only thing to consider as well. It's not like an athlete just suddenly is in condition straight away, just like with this, uh, is it a snip of the fingers or a, a snap? I snap, think, snap? I think you just snapped your fingers. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so what, so what I've done with my client, Lockie, who is um, looking in great condition at the moment, he started the prep quite lean because we did a mini cut beforehand. And what we've done is we've implemented quite a lot of refeeds, um, refeed weeks, multiple high days throughout the week as well. And we really haven't been that aggressive with body fat reduction. So I think that is one of the benefits of being ready slightly earlier is that you don't have to race towards the finish line and like pull off heaps amount of uh, body fat towards the end because that is the going to be the period where muscle loss is at its highest and also you got to think about the stress as well so if you're constantly worrying about if you're going to be ready or not then what's that going to do to your stress level it's going to be quite high you're not going to feel 100% confident and that might translate into your cortisol levels and also your training performance as well. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Honestly, like just getting ready early. And like Jack said, don't race towards the finish line. You don't want to be stressed during peak week and have to do anything like resort to any drastic protocols so that you can drop, you know, those few extra pounds or an extra kilogram or two. And ah, God, and it's going to make the journey so much more enjoyable. That's for sure. Because Man, you're just actually going to, you're not going to feel excellent because being at super lean, low fat body levels, it's going to feel like shit regardless of how many carbs you're eating. But at least you can make it a little bit better because, hey, a little bit of extra food and looking better and have, you know, actually looking forward to your training sessions and getting a pump again and having a bit more energy. It is always a good time. That's for sure. And I would say that goes the exact same for bodybuilders, but also, you know, female athletes, too, in in the fitness division and in WBFF divisions, too. Just get yourself ready early and also, it would be a pretty crazy situation, though, if you were ready 10 weeks out because either you and your coach started prep like 50 weeks out or something, or you already started off super lean, or you just did very drastic measures at the very beginning so that you were ready two months early. But again, it, it's going to depend on the situation too, because sometimes you might have shows that are months in between. So for example, next year when I compete, I'll be doing my first show in February, and then I'll have an entire month until my following show in March, and then I'll have a good month and a half to two months before the ICN shows and AWNBS shows all start too. So I'm going to have a big period between there, but the reason why I would be ready technically two months in advance for those ICN shows is because I will be peaking for my IFBB shows in February and in March. So it would depend on the situation too. But in that situation, I certainly plan on giving myself a lot of diet breaks and yeah, 
I'm going to be ready early, so hopefully I will be feeling a lot better and be able to eat a lot more carbs up until those um, ICN shows, which really looking forward to. So, yeah. Mm. It'll be an exciting time of the year. Yes, I hope so. I can't wait to see myself with a six pack. <laughs> I've been building this thing. I swear to God, I just want to show it off. <laughs> well, it could be an eight pack. We don't know yet. Who knows? We Only time will tell. <laughs> time and calorie reduction will tell. Okay, so moving on to the next question. This one's by Lawrence and he asks, what's the difference between resting and basal metabolic rate? Cool. So this is actually a really good question because, you know, a lot of people probably would have seen people refer to, oh, my resting metabolic rate. So my RMR or my basal metabolic rate, BMR. And I guess are they interchangeable though? Yes, some people interchange them, but they there is a slight difference. So quickly, the difference is is that basal metabolic rate is taken under much more strict conditions. So basal metabolic rate, there are a lot more requirements for taking this. So usually you have to spend you know the night in a in a laboratory, and then you need to be fasted for at least 12 hours. And then what you do is you wake up and they test your basal metabolic rate through gas analysis. So basal metabolic rate, you know, it's really the amount of calories that you are burning at complete rest. So it's usually first thing when you wake up in the morning, you're very, very relaxed. The room is still usually very dark. You know, you're just very lightly breathing. Your heart rate's quite low. And fasting is a huge component of it as well because you need to fast for at least 12 hours so that the amount of calories that you're burning doesn't actually take into account the thermic effect of food, which can be up to 10% of some people's energy expenditure, which is quite high, especially if you're eating a hell of a lot of protein and fiber. But yeah, so this is basically the amount of calories that you're burning and the amount of heat that you're releasing and just the amount of calories your body requires to maintain normal functions. So that's normal respiratory rate, a beating heart, brain function, nerve function, just absolutely everything, normal organ function, just everything. And then resting metabolic rate is taken under much less strict conditions. So usually resting metabolic rate, yes, you still need to be chilled out and rested, like sitting down in a chair or something. You can't like jump off the treadmill and test your resting metabolic rate, but there aren't as many requirements. Like you don't need to be in a dark room. You don't have needed to just have slept for eight hours. You don't need to have been fasted. And Jack actually has a pretty good example of something that measures your resting metabolic rate. So yeah, there is a uh, product called the MedGem, which you basically uh, breathe into for an extended period of time. And it will, I think it measures your carbon dioxide output and that subsequently measures your uh, resting metabolic rate. Yeah, but at the same time, even though it's taken under less restrictive conditions, I think that resting metabolic rate is a better indicator of how many calories someone is on average burning throughout a normal day because really you need to take into account the thermic effect of food. We don't all walk around fasted. You know, a hell of a lot of us like to eat. So we usually have a belly full of food. And also, you know, resting metabolic rate 
takes into account a slightly higher heart rate and a slightly higher respiratory rate too because we are usually moving around and we are fidgeting and we are usually burning slightly more calories even while we're chilling out during the day. We're not always in like total zen mode like we are when we wake up. So I think resting metabolic rate is a lot more accurate for more, for most people, but basal metabolic rate, essentially, that's how many calories you're burning when you're asleep. Yeah, personally, I don't really find either of them particularly useful for actual real-life application, uh, practical application, should I say. And yeah, the reason behind that is just because it's so variable depending on exercise, how much you fidget, uh, what sort of food you eat, all those sorts of things. So like it's, I find it much more accurate just to uh, even just guesstimate their approximate intake based on um, a description of their lifestyle really. I'd really, yeah, I just get someone to track their food accurately for a week or two and in conjunction with tracking their body weight. And then if you say, okay, on average per week, you're eating this many calories and your body weight's stable, hey, that's probably your maintenance calories. So that's pretty And a lot of the time it will be very different to what the machine says. So. Yeah, because if you were put on a machine, I doubt it would say like four and a half thousand calories a day. Mm. <laughs> okay. But then again, that's not my resting anyway. Can, <laughs> it's a bit like Inception. Yeah, but. you know what I mean. Oh, who, who, God knows how many calories Jack burns. Who knows? It's a mystery. Okay, so this next question is by Liv Fiddler, and she asks, our opinion on spud light versus normal white potatoes? Oh, the question so, of life. <laughs> Tierra is a bit biased in this question for obvious reasons, so Dude, what I'd just, answer I'm first. a walking spud. <laughs> <laughs> so essentially, spud light is a genetically modified potato, so... So I don't know. This would actually be better for my uh, brother to answer who's into ecology. And essentially what they do, I think, though, is that they breed uh, potatoes together that naturally have low (laughs) levels of... (laughs) Naturally have low levels of carbohydrate. And over time, they just find, I don't know, something to do with the lowest carbohydrate variant. Yeah, they're doing something with the... (laughs) There's something going on in those potato labs. Not they Genetic modifications, they change things on the DNA strands of the potatoes. God knows how. Mm. But um, yeah, I'd love to see an inbred potato. Like, you know, a sweet potato crossed with white potato. Mm. Might be like a polka dot. (laughs) I'm sure they've done that already. (laughs) That'd be cool. But yeah, so essentially the normal white potatoes... Again, there's going to be lots of different uh, variants of them as well. But yeah, there's there's no, nutritionally, there's no difference between the two really. Like it's just one has less carbs, the other one is slightly more. But Tierra does have an interesting uh, fact to say as well. Yeah, so I guess if you guys think about this, because we've talked about, you know, in our why you'll never hit your macros perfectly is because when it comes to labeling food products, there can be a 25% deviance between the calories stated and the macros stated and how much that food actually contains. So when you think about it, this 25% less carb potato could actually equal out to be the same amount of carbs as your normal, you know, next door white potatoes. So <laughs> I don't know. I don't see I don't see much of a difference to be honest, but I guess if you want to get that, you know, you just destroyed the comp prep spotlight industry. I am so sincerely <laughs> sorry. <laughs> you might have to eat one less potato. <laughs> 
<laughs> but yeah, uh, I guess that's our answer to that question. <laughs> yeah. Both taste good. Love potatoes. Okay, so this next question is again by Liv Fiddler, and it says how to track sugar alcohols. So yeah, this can be a tricky one depending on the type of sugar alcohol. So we know sugar alcohols do contain partial calories. So there'll be ones such as xylitol, sorbitol, anything that ends in an OL indicates an alcohol group. Uh, Bring back some chemistry there. Oh, very good. (laughs) (laughs) I still have nightmares from biochem. And so, yeah, um, what I would usually recommend is basically tracking the full calories. So, so I would usually do four calories per gram. Yeah, yeah, it, there can be anywhere between two to four, but I'd probably, just to be safe, go towards those higher ends. So count sugar alcohols as ca- um, as carbohydrates. And, you know, on most food packets that contain sugar alcohols, they still have to list them. Protein bars are notorious for this. Like at the gym that Jack and I used to work at, there was a protein bar, you know, that says low carb, right? Only three grams of carbs, like actual carbs, whatever that means. And then, but there's a total of 20 grams of sugar alcohols. Like, holy crap. Talk about, (laughs) yeah, talk about bloating and just being very uncomfortable. So yeah, 20 grams of sugar alcohol. So what I would do is I would just- So it could be potentially 80 calories. Exactly. Exactly. Plus the additional carbs as well. Yeah. And when you think about some people's weekly macro cuts- you know, some a coach might cut your macros by 20 grams of carbs. And then if you weren't counting sugar alcohols and you ate one protein bar one day, you've just eaten, you know, 20, you've just eliminated that macro cut for that day. So it certainly is something to think about. But at the same time, it is a mystery. It is a mystery how many calories we actually obtain from them because sugar alcohols, we don't absorb them like normal carbohydrates or glucose, fructose, galactose through our small intestine, they actually move into the large intestine and they're fermented by bacteria in the large bowel. And then they're converted into short chain fatty acids and those are absorbed into the bloodstream. Those are used as energy. Uh, so it is a mystery of but how many- But any sort of resistant starch is done the same way. Yeah, exactly. So we don't really know. Mm. Yeah, it, it is a mystery. So we'll leave that with a question mark. Yeah. <laughs> Ooh, who knows there's many mysteries in this podcast but yeah count them as carbs count them as carbs so the next question is by candace and she asks which myth about food bothers you most as dietitians wow oh wow. my god there are so many you you go first so probably that you need to eat specific foods to uh, create specific results so for example say if someone wants to lose weight they immediately cut out all the the sugar, the like the processed food, only eat sweet potatoes and and chicken and stuff like that and broccoli, and like in a lot of cases for someone who is obese or overweight and they want to uh, drop weight, it is usually as simple as just if you just switch the the uh, sugar soft drinks to diet drinks like that immediately they lose weight from that alone or using uh, artificial sweeteners instead of uh, sugar in their tea and coffee. But like, like just because you want to build muscle doesn't mean you immediately have to switch to chicken and rice and broccoli and all that sort of stuff. Like, or other things as well, such as like which food is better out of like rice and potato. Like they're, <laughs> they're just two different carbohydrate options and you just need to look at them like that instead of seeing as one better than the other. Yeah. And like, I'm not, this definitely, I'm not actually getting at anyone by any means, but that's just a reality of 
how people think if they're if they don't actually understand the nutritional properties and stuff yeah and i'll be the first to admit i used to think like that too you know i used to think that oats were superior over anything and oats were better than rice and oats were better than bread and yeah oats you know breakfast lunch and dinner kind of thing but you know as we grow older you know and as we become more educated and more open-minded we change our minds so (laughs) Mm. i remember tiara used to use our buckwheat flour instead of flour and i I was was such (laughs) an idiot One day I was like, Tiara, why don't you just use flour? And like, it, like sometimes in those situations, you never like actually question it until someone else asks it. And I'm like, oh, you're right. But I always just, you know, I just always stopped as, oh, buckwheat's a superfood or buckwheat's better than normal flour. But until you actually look at the macros on the back of the packet, they're pretty, like they're the exact same. And not gonna lie, normal whole wheat flour makes and bakes things so much goddamn better than buckwheat flour so thanks for changing my life and thanks for changing my protein cakes i owe you (laughs) but what about your food myth tiara man okay so if i had to name one and there are so many it would probably have to be something to do with gluten-free because for those who don't actually know what gluten is because it sounds like a foreign bacteria or something yeah it does it sounds like like glutes are a nice word you know like i love my glutes (laughs) but other people are just like petrified of the word gluten and gluten is simply a type of protein in wheat you know there's nothing to be scared of unless you have celiac disease which only affects something like one percent of the australian population where the gluten protein, it does cause damage to the villi in their small intestine and it causes them to flatten out. And that can be very dangerous because damage to those villi, then they can absorb vitamins and minerals and nutrients and macronutrients and they suffer from severe nutrient deficiencies. So if you have celiac disease, that is a big deal. And then obviously you need to avoid all gluten-based products and all products that contain gluten. But for the rest of us, man, enjoy your bread, enjoy your wheat bix, enjoy your oats. Like gluten is not a bad thing at all. And I think that people- Is gluten in oats? Yeah, there is a type of gluten. It's a type of um, strand of gluten in oats. But yeah. That's what I learned this week, guys. Oh, very good. (laughs) But yeah, guys, I think that people, you know, just jump at these- Uh, nutritional labels like gluten-free because it has the word free in it and people are like woo something's missing so I think that people get confused with gluten-free as in like healthier lower calorie because they think that something's missing but the truth is because gluten it actually helps bread products rise and it gives them their fluffiness and when you take gluten away from bread the bread is just crap, man. It's like hard and like you don't want to eat it. And that's why food scientists actually have to go to great lengths and they have to add in a whole bunch of extra different ingredients and different types of gums and fillers to try to mimic gluten-free bread to be more like normal bread. And usually gluten-free products are actually higher in calories because a lot of times they actually have to add more fats and sugars too to mimic the taste of normal bread products as well. So gluten is just fine and it is a type of protein. And a lot of vegans and vegetarians will actually use 
gluten in like in making different products and stuff. My sister's vegan and I know she used to make these like gluten chicken nugget things. But yeah, anyway, eat your gluten unless you have celiac disease. <laughs> Woo! Okay. Yeah, that's that's my little rant on gluten free. <laughs> you got onto chicken nuggets somehow as well. <laughs> Good old nuggets. So something we're going to be doing differently this week is you might have seen on our Instagram stories, we put out a poll about whether people would like to see one or two podcasts a week. And uh, it was definitely in favor of two. So what we thought we would do is split up the questions we get each week because we get quite a few now and just make two shorter, like not even shorter episodes, but two moderate length episodes as opposed to one like two hour episode. It's pretty nice to know that people actually want to listen to us. I was pretty relieved. Mm. (laughs) Okay, so yeah, that that's awesome. And I'm yeah, with more time on our hands now, it's so great. And I love recording these podcasts. So it should be fun. They're like the best little project in the world and little hobby I get to do each week. And well, we get to do each week and now we get to do it twice. So yeah, we will end this podcast on one thing that we learned this week. So Jack, what's on your mind? <laughs> I know you didn't learn that thing with the gluten and the oats. <laughs> You, you thought I knew that. I'd hope you knew that. We got taught that. Yeah. Weren't you listening? <laughs> <laughs> so I was actually doing some research about pain the other day, which is a, I guess, somewhat of a interest in of mine, which is kind of weird. But you're interested in pain? <laughs> <laughs> no, it was mainly due to uh, my, just due to my uh, previous back injury, which I still have uh, pain from daily, but. It's about understanding pain and because I feel like the more I understand it, the the better I'll be able to cope with it because essentially nothing is uh, physically wrong with me anymore, but I still have, uh, I guess the correct terminology is just chronic pain, which is a very, very broad term. But I was doing some reading of a book called Explain Pain. Can't remember who the author is, but if anyone's interested, they can DM me. But essentially, it was describing that um, this is just a very, very, very small snippet. But pain is essentially just our brain's interpretation of the issue. So say if you are walking in the bush and you feel like a sharp sharp tug at your leg and it's and you think oh that's nothing it's just like a little stone that i that um hit my leg or my ankle um but then you at the end of the walk you look down and there's like a big snake bite on your on your ankle um and then say six months later you go bushwalking and the same thing happens then you then you crowd in pain you fall to the ground clutching your ankle um but it was just a little scratch from a rock so like it's all about the brain's interpretation of pain And that's the same, it's a very, very similar issue with chronic pain as well, how it's all about our interpretation of it and are we hyper-focused on an issue or not when nothing's present. Okay, so something that I learned this week, I thought this was kind of funny. Uh, This has to do with supplement research. So I was listening this morning to the new Stronger by Science podcast with Greg Knuckles and Eric Trexler. They're two hilarious guys. Anyway, they were talking about marijuana and they were talking about marijuana in the context of supplement research. And because marijuana is illegal for athletes to use in contest, they actually have tried to do research into marijuana and see if it has any ergogenic effects. So what that means is, is it performance enhancing? But (laughs) 
what I just thought was hilarious about these things, because essentially you can imagine the study design, they would get a few subjects high and then they would try to get them to go exercise. But a major flaw of this study was that after the subjects were high, they really didn't feel like training. <laughs> mm, not surprised. Oh man, it was. I just thought that was so funny. And they had to then uh, count those subjects as like dropouts. <laughs> but technically they were there. They were just like, nah, I don't, I don't really feel like it. But yeah, I just thought that was hilarious. And clearly they didn't really think about that when they were designing the methods for this study. But you know what, maybe like the researchers should have tried to like persuade the subjects with some like, you know, if you do the squats, you can have a post-workout protein cookie. <laughs> oh man, maybe that, that could have got them off their butts. Who knows, like, ooh, cookies. I'll mm. do squats for cookies. <laughs> All right, so yeah, that's the end of this podcast. <laughs> All right, guys, if you enjoyed this episode, please remember to take a screenshot, post it to your Instagram stories, tag myself, tag Jack, tag the bodybuilding dietitians, and we'll catch you next week. Or we'll catch you in a few days because we're going to be doing these more wow. frequently. Wow. All right. See you later. Bye, guys. <laughs>